1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
2: Adani Group, where dreams
0: turn
3: to reality.
0: Until just over two weeks ago, that was the impression many investors had of the Adani Group, one of India's great success stories.
3: In the 90s, we ventured into natural resources with coal trading.
0: At the same time, it moved into logistics and now operates India's largest port.
2: A 40-kilometer-long shoreline, where man and machine come together to face the most gigantic ships that sail the ocean. A multi-cargo
0: megaport in action. And it didn't stop there.
4: In little over a decade, You have become India's largest private sector, power producer, port operator, airport operator, consumer gas business and electric transmission company.
0: In the last three years, the value of shares in Adani's companies have increased more than 600%. And that has made the group's founder and boss, Gautam Adani, India's richest man and the third wealthiest person in the world.
4: With a $137.4 billion fortune, Adani has overtaken LBHM chairman Bernard Arnold and now trails just tech titans Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos of the US in the ranking.
0: Adani has had an ability to complete projects on time and on budget in a country where that can
3: be hard to do. Visionary leadership, excellent business practices, and innovative management. ...makes Adani Group truly one of its kind.
0: But on the 24th of January, a short seller, Hindenburg Research... ...alleged there could be another explanation for Adani's riches.
3: We're seeing some big moves this morning after Hindenburg Research, which is an activist short-selling firm, made a big call yesterday, publishing a report saying that Adani Group, an Indian conglomerate that runs a portfolio of energy and logistics companies, is committing what it called the largest con in corporate history.
0: The allegations were furiously rejected by the group's chief financial officer, Jagashinder Singh.
4: The report is a malicious combination of selective misinformation, stale, baseless and discredited allegations that have been tested and rejected by India's highest courts.
0: But despite the firm's rebuttals, the value of shares in its companies plunged by more than 40%, leaving investors asking how much of Adani's success was just a dream and how much is reality. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the
5: economy and the world of business. In Singapore, I'm Mike Bird. In Washington, DC, I'm Alice Fulwood. In London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. And in today's
0: show, how a small short seller in the US managed to rattle one of India's corporate
1: giants. First, we'll hear about the man behind the name.
3: Hamadani has gone from literally just trading tiny diamonds on the street corners of what was then Bombay to a fundamental component of the Indian economy.
5: Then we'll explore the impact of Hindenburg's report on Adani's businesses.
4: It is worrisome because Adani is a large group. Its ability to raise finance is important.
0: And finally, we'll speak to a well-known short seller about Hindenburg's allegations and hear what it's like to hit send on a report that's intended to crash a company's stock
2: price. Just close your ears and breathe, let everybody read it. And within six hours, you're gonna know if you made a big mistake or if you're right. Alice, Tom, hello.
1: Hi, Mike.
0: Hello. So be completely honest here. How familiar were you with the Adani group, the companies before the 24th of January?
1: Not very at all. I was actually much more familiar with Hindenburg. I started following all the short sellers after the GameStop saga in January 2021. So I saw Hindenburg's foreboding tweet that day that they were about to release a report on the biggest corporate fraud ever. And when it was revealed that it was the Adani group, I was initially confused, to be honest. I didn't know much about the group at all. And I didn't understand how they could think that it was going to be as big as they said. But I'm much more familiar now.
5: So I actually first came across Adani a bit over a decade ago. As listeners may have detected from my accent, I'm originally from Australia and Adani has been quite a controversial company there uh, because of a very big coal mine it built in the state of Queensland, which generated a lot of opposition, not just because of the greenhouse gas emissions, but also because of the coal barges that have to pass over the Great Barrier Reef, which is one of Australia's natural treasures to get all that coal back to India. So so I guess for a while I've been aware of Adani as this kind of giant of Indian industry, but I think it's only recently that I've really come to understand just how massive it is and how important it is to India's economy.
0: Yeah, I think in my part of the world as well, Adani's got interests in Indonesia too. So yeah, we're not just talking about an Indian company here, but one with a lot of global interests. So when we've spoken about short sellers recently, it's usually been because investors on Reddit have caused them absolutely massive losses by driving up the value of stocks like GameStop that they had taken a short position in. And as a reminder to listeners, shorting is when you borrow a share in a company and you sell it on in the hope that by the time you have to return the share to the person you borrowed it from, the share price will have gone down and you can buy it for less than you sold the borrowed share for. Basically, it is a bet structured to pay out if the stock goes down. To complicate things a bit, short-selling equities is quite difficult in India. So in this case, Hindenburg had to short US-traded bonds and non-Indian-traded derivatives related to the Adani Group companies. To talk about what happened here, I wanted to bring in another Tom, our Mumbai Bureau Chief Tom Easton, who has been thinking about Adani night and day since Hindenburg published its report. Tom, hello. Hi. Hi. So, Tom, before we get to the contents of the report, can you just walk us through Adani's empire? What sort of companies we're talking about when we're talking about the group in general?
3: So, the Adani group is enormously important in India. In 20 or 30 years, Gautam Adani has gone from literally just trading tiny diamonds on the street corners of what was then Bombay to A fundamental component of the Indian economy. He's the largest power producer for electricity generation. He has the longest power transmission network. He's the largest solar panel maker. He has the largest natural gas distributor. He has the largest coal producer. 23% of all the passenger traffic in the airports goes through airports that he manages he has the largest cement-making operation with 14 to 20 percent, or maybe the second largest, but first or second largest. 30 percent of India's grain is warehoused in capacity that Adani runs. He's the largest food company, and it produces the edible oil, the vegetable oil that's just a staple of the Indian diet. And he's involved in all sorts of other things, too, like defense. And he's got embryonic operation that plans for steel and for copper refining. So in anything that is fundamental to the Indian economy. Adani has a finger. He recently purchased a huge broadcasting network as well.
0: So enormous company peppering huge variety of sectors. Tell us a little bit as well about Hindenburg's research, which I think highlighted the very rapid share price growth of some of these companies. What else did the report say?
3: The premise of the report, and I think what really inspired the report, is that the Adani group of companies had their market valuation go up many fold over the past three or four years. And the underlying companies are not producing the kind of assets that show that appreciation. I mean, this is not a man who created Amazon and a new way of selling things. This is a person who's involved in power generation and so forth. So you tend not to have those radical jumps in stock valuation that come from those sort of assets. So I think that's probably what attracted Hindenburg's interest in Adani. So, There are three types of allegations in the Hindenburg Report. The first allegation is that the share price, that incredible appreciation of value or valuation, was actually caused, at least in part, by a very complex and opaque set of offshore entities, primarily in Mauritius but also around the world, that had very odd trading patterns. Now, the Adani Group is largely owned by insiders very, very small percent of its shares trade anyway. And therefore, having outsiders who may have had some connection to the group doing trading in the shares could conceivably have pushed the valuation up in large ways that are not explained by fundamental valuation or an ordinary market. So the first contention of the report is there was share manipulation. That's unproven. The second part of the report, and this is very important, is that the group is highly over leveraged. And the third part is a micro component of that, which is that its short term obligations exceed its short term cash and liquid capacity. And therefore, it is at risk for some sort of financial crunch. And a crunch in any one of the Adani companies, and there are 10 listed entities could spread to the others, and therefore have a chain reaction, possibly bringing down the group, kind of causing a crisis for the group, and also, of course, hitting the share price.
0: And could you tell us a little bit as well about how Adani has reacted to the allegations?
3: Well, Adani has reacted in a series of different ways. He first came out with a very brief report that was largely discounted. Then there were claims that Hindenburg's motivation was somehow an attack on India I think that kind of response has fallen by the wayside. He then came out with a far more substantial report, forcefully denying the allegation that it has been distributed to rating agencies and regulators and so forth and released to the public. And that's part of a larger battle that he has to survive. I think his strongest rebuttal to the report has been simply the earnings reports of his operating companies in recent days. Ports reported, gas reported, electric generation reported. Gas transmission has come out with report and green energy and so forth. And the results have varied between really very good to okay. And in the midst of a financial panic, having companies that have been reporting these sort of things in a positive way is a very, very powerful position. It is probably the best refutation to a short sale attack you can possibly have. The share price of his companies really took a hit after the report came out. It probably lost half of its valuation, well in excess of $100 billion. But in recent days, many of the share prices have rebounded at least a bit. I mean, they're far, far off their highs, but they're also substantially off the lows as well.
0: That's fascinating. Tom, thank you very much for talking us through it. Please stick around because I want to come back to you later. But first, to understand what's going on at Adani now, I've been looking through the company's history. A little more than 30 years ago, the Indian economy was at a turning point. The finance minister at the time, Manmohan Singh, started a process of economic liberalisation, which he hoped would transform the country.
4: Employment opportunities can grow at a faster rate, that our country is unable to launch a second industrial revolution.
0: On national television in 1992, he spelled out his vision for liberalized markets, private enterprise and deregulation that would steam ahead through the 1990s.
4: That our country is enabled to be integrate itself into the world economy in a manner in which we can take advantage of the opportunities offered by the new global economy.
0: One young entrepreneur taking advantage of those new opportunities was Gautam Adani. He was from Gujarat and had a middle-class background. He was trying to expand his small import-export business, Adani Enterprises. Adani had modest successes importing plastics and other basic commodities into India, but the massive turning point for his company came in 1995. We welcomed you to Mundra, an economic gateway for the nation. When it won the right to develop the Mundra port in Gujarat. The number one commercial port of India, the Mundra Port, commenced its operations in 1998. Mundra isn't just an important part of Adani's empire, but an illustration of his approach to business. It started out after a failed joint venture with American commodities firm Cargill left him with a huge swathe of land by the sea. Adani used the port to fulfil his ambitions for vertical integration – to capture more of the import business supply chain rather than relying on other companies and state-owned enterprises along the way. From there, Adani expanded into railways and power generation, which guaranteed the company's business operations. By the mid 2000s, Mundra was a full blown special economic zone.
4: Well, Adani Ports has finally received the much awaited environmental as well as uh, CRZ clearance from the government of India. If you look at uh, the clearance that has been granted for almost 8,500 hectares of land, uh, which is in Mundra, they will be able to start manufacturing units and construction of manufacturing units uh, post uh, this uh, clearance in Mundra. Today, it is
0: India's largest private port and a vital piece of infrastructure in a country with ambitions to boost its manufacturing base to new heights. And the port is emblematic of Adani's whole approach to expansion. Adani continues to expand
2: its privately owned railway infrastructure, which includes a vast rail line network of around 225 kilometers. One part
0: of the business is barely underway before it is being used to finance the next undertaking. It's moved the company into businesses like airports, solar power and more, The Adani Group now plans to build world-class data center infrastructure in the city of Chennai. It's a debt-heavy model, and it attracts capital from foreign companies and investors. Adani has always insisted that his businesses operate at arm's length from the government, but the firm operates in areas like power, infrastructure, mining and logistics, where interaction with the government is an everyday reality. In emerging markets like India, companies like Adani's live and die by licences, permits, and permissions. Mr Adani's relationship with the Indian state has rotated around one politician in particular, a fellow Gujarati. Prime Minister Narendra Modi and Gautam Adani's careers mirror one another. In 2001, not long after the Munda report was finally opened, Modi became chief minister of Gujarat. The two men made parallel moves to the national stage in both business and politics, respectively. — Amidst accusations of crony capitalism, the industrialist Gautam Adani spoke with headlines today and denied ever-receiving favours from Gujarat chief minister Narendra Modi. — Critics have accused the company of a cronyist relationship with Modi and his BJP, To them, contracts like those awarded to Adani to manage several airports in 2019 look like favoritism. Mr. Adani insists his company plays by the rules, bidding for company contracts like everyone else. But the company's own emphasis on nation-building... Thinking big, doing better is reflected in each action of its strive towards nation-building. ...and speeches like this one, made last year in front of Prime Minister Modi himself...
4: Honourable Prime Minister, you are building a new India, a new India that works to restore its past glory.
0: Leave little doubt that Adani's empire has astutely dovetailed with the ambitions of the Indian government. Last year, Adani overtook his rival, Mukesh Ambani, to become India's richest man and his companies made up about 6% of the Indian stock market. Deftly navigating India's rapidly growing economy, and the ambitions of its government propelled Gautam Adani to once unimaginable heights. But Hindenburg's report has shaken those foundations. It's still not clear exactly what happens from here, and how much damage has been done. So Alice, Tom, what do you make of what you've heard so far?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. No one seems to be in any doubt that Adani has huge value in its assets. So it owns all of these ports and power generation companies and all of that kind of stuff. And that is what makes it such an important part of India's economy. The thing that's toxic about the claims that Hindenburg has made is about the leverage that it's had to use to achieve that. So, yes, it has this very valuable pile of assets on one side of its balance sheet, but you know, how much leverage and how urgently is it due is this other side of that and uncertainty around that question can be extremely difficult for a company to deal with. It reminds me of all the uncertainty about all the leverage that banks had back in the crisis. Obviously, it's not the same situation, but it's a huge question. And if it's difficult to answer, I completely understand why it can cause this kind of spooking of investors.
5: For me, the fact that Adani has built such a sprawling empire with everything from ports to mines to cement and power generation is really interesting because it really goes against this trend we've seen in Western countries over the past few decades where conglomerates that span multiple industries have been unwound because of this emerging consensus that management teams are just much more successful when they focus on one thing. And Adani really flies in the face of that, as do other Indian conglomerates like Tata or Reliance. And there's literature on this arguing that there's good reasons for conglomerates in emerging markets because capital markets are often underdeveloped, which can make it more difficult to raise money, because management talent can be more scarce, because communication networks are patchier, and so on. But I do wonder whether with Adani we're starting to see some of the challenges of running such a sprawling empire starting to bubble up.
0: Yeah, I think for me, the really big question here is about how you value the intangible relationships that Adani has built up and how you value that sort of reputational capital as well. And this is a big deal, particularly, I think, in emerging markets, you could look at something like the South Korean chaebol companies, which are flag carriers in a similar way, you know, they're not directly linked to the government, but their history is embedded in South Korean economic development. And you could argue that Adani has played or might play a role a little bit like that in India. And therefore, when you're talking about what are the value of its assets how heavily leveraged it is, you've got to take into account that maybe it's not going to behave like a normal company. And how do you account for that sort of thing is such an open question that I find this really interesting and particularly seeing a sort of very American, very market-oriented player, a short seller like Hindenburg,
5: coming steaming in to this new environment. Yeah, I found all that really, really interesting. So this whole saga around Adani has been generating some bad headlines for India, I think it's fair to say. But Across the Himalayas, it's been really interesting to watch over the past few weeks, just how China's economy has roared back to life as the country has moved out of lockdowns. And there's a piece on that, which I'm very much looking forward to in this week's edition of the paper, which explores how long the momentum can be sustained and the impacts of of China's resurgence on the global economy.
1: Yes. In addition to our excellent China coverage, I'm looking forward to reading our Lexington column this week penned by James Bennett on the State of the Union in the US. It's felt like quite a patriotic time for America after uh, everyone was sort of chanting USA in the streets after they shot down the Chinese balloon. And Biden did get in a couple of singers in the State of the Union. So I'm looking forward to reading what James Bennett has to say about it.
0: I believe our China section two will have some commentary on Balloon Gate, on the fallout from the biggest... (laughs) spat between the US and China on record, obviously, this enormous balloon and the downing of it, uh, which, frankly, I can't get enough of. And I I do, in all seriousness, want to read what our China reporters and editors have to say about it. But to read those pieces and the rest of the coverage in the paper, you do need to be a subscriber to The Economist.
5: Listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. And that link is in the notes to this episode.
0: After the break, we're going to hear from an analyst on what sets a Dani group apart from its rivals. We'll also be speaking to a well known short seller about how he picks his targets.
3: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com.
0: Before the break we heard where the Adani group had come from and the allegations that had been leveled against it by short-seller Hindenburg research. To understand a bit more about Adani's finances, I wanted to speak to Mahesh Fayas, the chief executive of the Centre for Monitoring Indian Economy, a research firm that, as the name implies, produces data tracking the strength of the Indian economy. Mahesh, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. How would you compare Adani to other large Indian businesses? What are the similarities? What are the differences?
4: It is similar in many respects to the other large business houses of India, particularly if you look at those groups that are spread into capital-intensive industries, for example, the Tata Group or the Birlas or the JSW Group. So if I make that comparison, I find that the Adani group balance sheet on an aggregate basis has a slightly higher leverage, has a slightly worse current ratio, and still a comfortable interest cover. So although it looks little bad compared to the other industrial groups, it's not too bad. And
0: in terms of large Indian businesses in general, uh, would you say there's an issue with high leverage insolvency risks or is this something that's just specific to some firms?
4: I don't think that any group or any of the large business groups in India faces on a collective, on an aggregate basis, any insolvency problem. I don't even see a large leverage problem. Although these groups are largely into infrastructure projects, their debt to equity ratio is close to one or four. The non-adani groups, it is close to 0.7 or even less than 0.7, which is very comfortable in terms of a gearing ratio. The stress is in the current ratio, which is mostly below 1, but I don't think even that is a major cause for concern. It's not a very bad balance sheet.
0: Can you explain the significance of the current ratio?
4: So the current ratio tells you how much of current assets does a company have compared to the current liabilities? Ideally, this should be above one. That means you should be able to use your current assets, which are more liquid in the form of cash and bank balances, to pay off your current liabilities. Large companies can have a current ratio which is slightly lower than one because they have the ability to quickly raise cash because of their reputation. So if the current ratio is a little less than one, I don't think it's a big problem for the large business conglomerates. So
0: when we discuss the Adani companies, one of the things that comes up a lot is the way that their sort of ambitions dovetail or interlinked with investment in India. Generally, obviously, they're a big player in infrastructure investment. But how much of aggregate new infrastructure investment and investment generally in India is being implemented by the Adani group companies?
4: So I know the numbers in Indian rupees, so you will have to bear me out on that. But on an aggregate, the Adani group has investment projects worth about 7 trillion rupees. So with that, it turns out to be one of the larger investors into infrastructure. India has a very large investment pipeline in that Adani plays a small role. But in recent times, Well over 30% of the new investment proposals being made in India are made by the Adani. I mean, so that's quite a lot, really. I mean, this sounds like a company that has a level of real
0: economy, macroeconomic significance. Is that right?
4: That's right. The Adanis are investing big time into ports, into power generation and distribution, into cement, and a whole lot of other industries. So it's playing a big role in large infrastructure development in India.
0: One of the interesting things about the company is it's received quite a lot of foreign investment, which isn't true for a lot of Indian companies. Do you think that matters here to the impacts that these developments have for the Indian economy?
4: I think it is a good idea for a company to raise funds overseas. I think it's perfectly fine. The world is flush with capital. And if there's a credible project being run by a credible business group, then it's perfectly fine to raise funds overseas. Raising funds from overseas carries a lot more credibility and uh, the funds do come somewhat cheaper as well. And when we're looking at the vulnerability
0: of Adani so far since the release of the Hindenburg report, how does that impact India's growth plans and growth trajectory more broadly?
4: Well, I think what has happened in the recent past following the Hindenburg report I would term as worrisome. It is worrisome because Adani is a large group. Its ability to raise finance is important to ensure that its projects do get implemented and completed in time. If it faces funding problems or challenges, it will delay the implementation of these projects and it can hurt India's growth path if this problem persists. So I think it is important that the Adani crisis does not play out for too long and we find a solution to ensure that large infrastructure projects in India do get funded smoothly. Mahesh, thank you very much for making the time to talk to us. Thank you.
0: Another thing to note about Adani's financials recently is its share price growth. In 2020, the combined market capitalization of Adani's listed company, that's the total value of all the shares in all of the groups listed companies, was less than 30 billion US dollars. On the 24th of January, just before Hindenburg published its report, that figure was 217 and a half billion dollars. That is more than a seven fold increase in three years. By comparison, the Nifty 50, India's main stock index, climbed by about two-thirds during that time. So it's a share price growth that's attracted the attention of Hindenburg. To understand a bit about what a short seller is looking for when searching for a target, I wanted to speak to Andrew Left from Citron Research. He was harassed after he revealed that he had shorted GameStop shares. And it's also worth noting that he believes some of the allegations made by Hindenburg against Adani Allegations which Adani strongly denies. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us. Good morning. So firstly, and you've done this before, when you're looking for opportunities, how do you pick the companies that you're
2: searching for? You can look for things that are outliers. An example is if you looked at Adani and you see their margins or you see their stock price and you compare it to everyone else, it's a complete outlier. Then the next question would be, why is it an outlier? And if you can't find out, then it's worth more digging. Why is this stock up 2,000% and its competitors flat? What makes this different? Is there share manipulation involved? And that would be an obvious question. So if something looks wrong, there's a good chance it probably is.
0: We should say that Adani has issued a 413-page rebuttal and said that the charges are, quote, all lies, end quote. You've put together short-selling research in the past, Andrew. What sort of work goes into producing the kind of report that Hindenburg has done?
2: Oh, God, thorough. This took uh, the team at Hindenburg a a long time, I'm sure, because, you know, you have to cross every T and die your I knowing that the company is going to come after you. So it's a lot more work than if you're going to say, hey, you should buy the stock. You really have to be careful. And in terms of those potential downsides, when you publish a report like that, what's going through your mind? Oh, God. When you press send and it goes public, you just put a lot of confidence in your work. Through my experiences, just close your ears and breathe. Let everybody read it. And within six hours, you're going to know if you made a big mistake or if you're right. And you're not going to know by the stock price. You'll know by the reaction, what you'll get, the correspondence you'll get from the media. So no one said, oh, he doesn't understand this, or you don't get this. When you have that situation, maybe there's some form of complex accounting you didn't understand. But, But you'll know fast. So tell me, what was your initial
0: reaction to the Hindenburg report?
2: You know, I've known Hindenburg and Nate for a while, since they started. They did good work. I had no doubt the market in India is not covered as much because short selling is not allowed in India directly of stocks. You don't see the same type of research as you do in the US and it's not a very liquid market. So, of course, there's going to be some frauds there. But more importantly, when you saw the stock chart on Adani, it was pretty much straight up for a year and a half. So anyone who just any form of even back of the envelope analyst would have an understanding that it's probably enough overvalued stock. So I have no doubt the report would have an effect.
0: We should add here that obviously the Adani companies are arguing against a lot of the content of the report. You've had some sort of very varied experience with how regulators and and authorities treat these sort of reports. What are you expecting as a reaction from the Indian regulatory authorities?
2: I'm an optimist. So being an optimist, I think India will keep this as an isolated incident. They won't go ahead and try to vilify hindenburg i don't know if they necessarily they might have to protect their country somehow you know what they do with mr Adani is the question are they going to look at these charges these accusations are any of them true guilty i don't expect them to ever become the united states the system that we have in the united states is extremely thorough and vigilant against corporate male feasts i don't see that happening in india
0: And that's interesting obviously it makes it more difficult to some extent to short an indian stock or a company with a regulatory environment like india's how have they sort of approached this given that you can't short the stocks
2: if the question is how did hindenburg make money what did they short they disclosed that they shorted a derivative instrument or some form of the bonds so i don't know exactly what they shorted well people all of a sudden be looking up and down for opportunities in India to short? Not if you can't make money off it. So Adani seemed to be, if you look at this chart and you look at the valuation disparity between it and its competitors, it was low-hanging fruit.
0: Andrew, that's fascinating. Thank you very much for joining us. Have a great day. I'm back with The Economist's Tom Easton now. Tom, thank you very much for sticking around. Thank you for having me. So you've been paying a huge amount of attention to this story over the last few weeks. I know you've just finished writing a really deep dive into what happened and what it means for Adani and India's economy more broadly for this week's paper. What are your main takeaways on this story?
3: So I think there are four components to the Adani story. One is a financial market battle over share prices and complexities over the ownership structure, and that continues. A second is a solvency battle. Is the Adani empire financially strong enough to withstand what it needs to withstand? And in that regard, there have been a lot of developments recently. For instance, um, six local rating agencies and three global Rating agencies have largely affirmed Adani's investment-grade ratings, though standard reports did suggest that there would be a negative outlook for them. But there has been no downgrade. Thirdly, there's a political battle because, uh, you know, Guatemalani is perceived to be tightly connected to the prime minister of India, Neandra Modi, and of course that has unleashed the opposition party to make All sorts of accusations, founded or unfounded. But then there's a fourth component. And that's really, I think, what we at The Economist often would say is the most important component of the story. And that is, what does it mean for India? What happens, and this is very possible, if he's financially constrained? Will that impede India's growth? Now, the truth is that the Adani group works in areas like power, like ports, all of which have huge consequences for other parts of the Indian economy. So on one sense, if he is constrained, it will impede Indian growth. But there's another question. Is the entire economic model that's based around some enormously important people like Mr. Adani by itself constraining India's growth? Wouldn't it be better if there are many, many people involved? And is something that might hold back Mr. Adani, would that allow other people to emerge and be involved in the creation of projects They would push India forward and maybe create more competition in the marketplace in a way that would be largely beneficial. Now, you know, one thing that argues against it is that Adani's group companies are not all that profitable. Return on capital is fairly low, so you can't accuse them of just extracting huge rents. On the other hand, anyone receiving a disproportionate number of deals could conceivably not be working in an optimal fashion. Though, to give credit to Mr. Adani, I think the one thing most people in India would agree with is not only does he get things done, and this is a point that's made in the credit reports too, he get things done on time. And in India, that's just a remarkable thing. So in that sense, the biggest debate is going forward, is Mr. Adani constrained or his companies constrained? Will they be limited in what they can do? Will that affect the Indian economy in a negative way or will it allow more virtuous entry, which over the long term will be better for India?
0: Tom, thank you very much for giving us your time. And I'm very, very excited to read the briefing on all of this this week. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. So, Alice, Tom, how does this make you feel about short sellers after what we've
5: heard? I can certainly see why short sellers have been controversial in the past. The reality is they do profit at the expense of the companies that they're trading in. And sometimes they get their allegations right and, and they get a, a substantial payoff from that. But sometimes they also get it wrong and there's a lot of downside risk there, including all of the legal liabilities that they can potentially face. So it's certainly a job that takes a lot of guts. I'm not sure it's the type of job that I'd want to do.
1: Yeah, in 2021, with the whole GameStop saga and through the sort of rest of that year, you saw individual traders, retail traders pile in to stocks that professional investors had sold short as a sort of rebellion against the idea uh, that they should, should be doing that. And short sellings really became the villain. Andrew Left is a great example of this. He actually published a sad YouTube video at the end of January in 2021, saying that he was going to quit. And he has come back to the work, but it was a sort of pretty harrowing time for people who were short GameStop. And obviously, the cycle has turned in 2022, with interest rates going up, and a lot of the froth and excitement has come out of stocks in general. And I think that does set the stage for firms like Hindenburg and short sellers in general to have a much better time of it. So the specifics of the Hindenburg report and the story with Adani, we'll see how much of it bears out over time. It certainly has had a huge impact in the short term. But I think we're going into a potentially sort of structural period where you're going to see more of these kinds of stories and short sellers are probably going to do relatively well and potentially be the heroes of the case rather than uh, the villains as they were two years ago.
0: I find these stories absolutely fascinating, and I can see an obvious affinity between short sellers and financial journalists as the sort of natural cynics of the world of business and markets. When markets are going well and everyone's very bullish and optimistic about growth and technology, it's a lot of fun sometimes, but it can get a bit boring. So I can see some sort of similarities there. But the real thing that makes me interested in these sort of stories is these ideas about prices and narratives and which one moves first. There's a saying that you'll occasionally hear investors saying, which is basically that the price moves the narrative. And basically that means that when the shares of a company like this crash, it gives credence to the initial impulse for the selling. And if the shares hadn't crashed, maybe people would think this was all a load of nonsense. It really makes you think about how markets work in that sense. It's also fascinating just to see India, which is a country that really doesn't have this sort of market research conducted very much at all, and a relatively small proportion of the equity market owned overseas have this sort of, yeah, super capitalistic, cynical, short selling activity going on there. I think that's about all we can cover. Shall we pivot to our stats of the week?
1: Yes, my stat of the week this week is three hours, which is the number of hours per week that the average American spends with their friends, uh, or at least they did in 2021. And that is down by more than 50% since 2013. I thought that that was kind of sad. And so I wanted to share it with all of our listeners.
0: That is incredibly depressing. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. He says spending his weekday evenings sat on Zoom calls recording the podcast.
1: Mike, we're not your friends. It's absolutely <laughs> devastating.
0: This doesn't this doesn't count, surely, as hanging out with your friends. Sorry, sorry
1: guys. Sorry
5: to burst. Speak the bubble. for yourself, mate. is the highlight of my day, Mike. Well, on a completely different note, my stat of the week is 3,110,000, which is the number of cars that China exported last year. And that was an increase of more than 50% on the figure from 2021. And that actually makes China now the second largest car exporter in the world, overtaking Germany and closing in on Japan who for now is still the number 1. A lot of that actually goes to emerging markets. So China's cars tend to be on the cheaper side, but a number of the big players like BYD have their eyes set on the west and and Europe in particular and are actually quite advanced when it comes to electric vehicle technology which has been a a big focus for them over the past few years. Now, I for one do not own a car and am um, not presently in the market for one. But what about you both? Would you buy a Chinese car? I will tell you
0: that they've started to pop up here in Singapore. I've taken some BYD taxis. I couldn't tell you whether it seems like a good drive because I wasn't driving it. In Singapore, you have to pay enormous amounts of money to own a car. Uh, so I do not own one. But I don't see why not. I think there's parts of Asia you go to and the the, the sort of Japanese car domination is almost absolute. You could drive around Southeast Asia and it really is just carpeted in Japanese cars. And I don't see a reason why the Chinese car manufacturers can't take some of that market if they're providing something at a decent price.
1: I am in the market for a car at the moment, but I I don't know the sort of state of uh, trade relations between the US and America, whether it would even be possible to acquire one. So I'll probably get stuck with a, to be honest, a Japanese car, probably a Toyota. But uh, yeah, in theory, yes. In practice, probably not.
0: I'm looking forward to the story you write when your Chinese-bought car is bricked by some sort of software disagreement between the US and China <laughs> and you're not allowed to drive buy it By the balloon! By the balloon, by the balloon. My stat of the week is 4.8% which is Japanese wage growth in December, year on year. Now, that might not sound like all the wage growth in the world, but in Japan, that is the fastest in 26 years. Some of the younger listeners to this program may not have been alive when Japan last had wage growth that fast. And it's it's interesting to me because it plugs into this question mark over whether Japan is going to see a little bit of accelerated inflation and whether that makes the Bank of Japan's current policy sort of far too easy and far too restrictive. We've written about that a bunch and I suspect we're going to be writing about it even more as well. But with that, I think all that's left to do is thank Mahesh Vyas and
5: Andrew Left for joining us.
1: And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and
5: review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com.
0: Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie
5: Keyworth.
1: Our sound engineer is Ting Lee Lim.
5: And the executive producer is Marguerite Howe. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Alice Forward. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. And this is The Economist.